If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hello, my name's Dave. I am the editor of BBC History magazine, and this is the first part of our November podcast. I'm joined today by the deputy editor of the magazine, Sue Wingrove. Hello. Now, this month, of course, sees the 90th anniversary of the signing of the armistice that ended the First World War on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. The November issue of the magazine includes a special First World War supplement to commemorate that fact. And similarly, we've decided to devote this whole podcast to the war as well. So what's coming up? The Allies had massively improved their ability to fight by 1918. That's Professor Gary Sheffield. We'll be explaining how the tide of the war turned towards the Allies following the great and somewhat forgotten battles of 1918. So there were people who actually felt they must, it was their duty, to fight up to the last minute. Michael Palin who's fronting a moving Time Watch programme on the last day of the First World War, explains what he learnt about the last hours of conflict. This particular armistice is an extremely harsh one. And finally, Professor David Reynolds on how the armistice of 1918 sowed the seeds for the Second World War. Of course, all these subjects are explored in the current issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. But you don't have to go to the shops to get it, as we've got a great Christmas subscription offer for you this month. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today and not only will you save 25% on the shop price and get it delivered direct to your door, but you can choose from one of four great history books as a subs gift. The books you can choose from are Blood and Guts, A History of Surgery by Richard Hollingham, World War II Behind Closed Doors, Stalin, The Nazis in the West by Lawrence Rees, The American Future, A History by Simon Sharma, and finally, The Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England by Ian Mortimer. To subscribe, all you've got to do is go online at www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash subscribe dot ASP. Right, time for our first interview, uh, which is with Professor Gary Sheffield. Uh, BBC History Magazine section editor Rob Attar talked to Professor Sheffield, one of the leading experts on the First World War, about how the Allies triumphed in the latter months of 1918. In the article that you've written for our November issue, you say that the 100 days that began in the summer of 1918 constituted the greatest victories in British military history. Why do you believe this was so? Well, if you judge it by the scale of the fighting and also the issues at stake, I think it's certainly true. I should actually say it's the largest victories in British military history involving fighting major wars on the continent of Europe. But the British Army 
1918 was roughly 60 divisions strong. It's larger than any British army that has ever fought before. By comparison, Montgomery's army at the Battle of Alamein in 1942 was barely a tenth the size of that. And it's really the only time in history that the British army has taken the lead in defeating the main enemy, in this case the Germans, uh, in the main theatre of operations. And that simply did not happen in the Second World War, for example. And in previous wars, like Waterloo in 1815, Wellington was the leader of a coalition force of which the British only provided about a third of the troops. So even though it was an Allied victory, you think the British role was very strong here? I do, and I should actually say immediately, by British, I mean British Empire, because there were powerful Canadian, Australian, New Zealand and South African forces involved. And and it was absolutely a coalition victory. The overall commander, which never forget, was a Frenchman, Marshal Ferdinand Foch. The French played a significant role, so did the Americans, so did the Belgians. But actually the forces of the British Empire were the cutting edge of the victorious forces. Now how was it that Britain became that cutting edge? It's really because how things developed since 1914. When the war began, the French were by far and away the largest contributor of troops to the coalition. The British army, which landed in France in 1914, was only basically four and a bit divisions strong. Britain had to raise a mass army from scratch. That took place from the end of 1914 onwards. Britain's forces were up to about 60 divisions by mid-1916, beginning of the Battle of the Somme. But Britain remained really the junior partner in the fighting until the middle of 1917. Then as a result of the French mutinies, which broke out after the so-called Nivelle Offensive in April-May 1917, the French, not surprisingly, given the kicking they had taken given the huge casualties they had suffered, were unable to take the lead in the offensive, and so it passed to the forces of the British Empire under Sir Douglas Haig. And in 1918, Britain, or the British Empire forces, bore the major burden of the fighting. Why was it at this point that the British and the Allies were victorious? What had changed? There's a whole number of things going on here. If we start at the strategic level, the big picture... Germany had effectively won the war in the east. They defeated the Russians. Russia had collapsed into revolution by the end of 1917. And instead of coming to terms then, they then decided to try and knock the Allies out in the west. They launched a a massive series of offensives beginning at the end of March 1918. And they came close to defeating the Allies, but not close enough. And in the process, they exhausted themselves and really advanced quite considerable distances in some cases, but without delivering the knockout blow on the Allied armies. And by the end of July, really, they had shot their bolt. They launched one last offensive, known as the Second Battle of the Marne, which was stopped in its tracks, and an Allied counteroffensive pushed them back. And with the Germans' last offensive throw in July, effectively, the initiative passed to the Allies. And so the Allies were then able to take the offensive on the Western Front, beginning uh, on the 8th of August 1918 at the Battle of Amiens, when British, Australian, Canadian and French troops attacked. So that's the big picture. But further down, I think you find all sorts of interesting things happening. The Allies had massively improved their ability to fight by 1918. That's a combination of simply learning the bloody lessons of previous years, also of new technology coming along, and even just as importantly, learning how to use that new technology. And also the British war industries were at a very high pitch by that time, meaning that 
effectively the British had unlimited supplies of war materiel. And they also, at this stage, just still had enough troops to fight a major offensive. And so when the Allies did take the offensive from uh, early August onwards, their superior fighting methods, superior generalship, and not least their materiel superiority, pushed the Germans back and eventually brought them to a point of cracking by November 1918, at which point the Germans did effectively surrender. In the last year of the war, there were major offensives from both the Germans and from the Allies. What did the Germans not have that the Allies did have in these offensives? Where did they go wrong? Well, they went wrong at several levels. Uh, One basic thing was that the Germans were finding it increasingly difficult actually to move their equipment around the battlefield. The Allied naval bombardments were biting, meaning, for example, they had a shortage of horses. At that time, horses were essential for moving artillery in particular around the battlefield and they were very very short of horses they also had not got a sufficient amount of artillery to make sure that every army had sufficient so therefore they had to move large numbers of guns up and down the battlefield which when the allies took the offensive they didn't have to do because they actually had enough artillery in place to launch major attacks very very quickly they also the germans made huge mistakes The German commander Ludendorff in particular proved to be a remarkably poor strategist. His troops won a a series of tactical victories, in other words, victories on the battlefield, but he was unable to take advantage of them, not least because he kept changing the objective of what the German troops were trying to achieve. The German army actually at, at the battlefield level was highly effective in 1918, but it was let down by its generalship at the higher levels. And how did the British generals compare at this point? How successful were they? Well, the British generalship in the First World War, of course, is enormously controversial. But my view is that whatever the mistakes that were made, and there were plenty of them in earlier battles like the Somme and Passchendaele, British generalship in 1918 was pretty effective. And that's true, I think, from the man at the top, Douglas Haig, downwards. You had a series of people who had learned how to fight. They learned what was possible and what wasn't possible. And in particular, they adopted a series of, of limited offensives. So actually massing the guns, having enormous bombardments, which enabled the infantry and the tanks and so on and so forth to advance. But then instead of trying to push on to distant objectives, which was what the Germans were trying to do in the spring, they would then stop switched the point of the attack somewhere else, and precisely because they had much better means of moving troops and guns around the battlefield, and as I said, a pretty well unlimited supply of materiel, they're able to fight battles elsewhere. You had a a series of shallow battles which pushed the Germans back relatively short distances, but placed the Germans under such terrific pressure that eventually they cracked. Douglas Haig, who by no means can be seen as as, as faultless in the 1918 campaigns, even he was grasping the importance of these limited attacks rather than going for larger scale attacks. He actually ended the war a slightly disappointed man because he never achieved the complete breakthrough he was looking for. But though the, the, the Allied, particularly British methods, may not have been particularly spectacular in terms of large amounts of ground gained, they were highly effective, a combination of attrition and limited manoeuvre. So why do you believe these successful attacks in 1918 are much less well-known in Britain than, I suppose, the much less successful attacks at the Somme and Passchendaele? Uh, I think there's a couple of things here. The first one is that the sheer scale of the casualties in 1916 and 1917 were such that people, during the war itself, 
were shocked by something which had never occurred on that scale in British history ever before. And there's something about the British mentality which tends to look back at the failures and at best partial successes of 1916, 1917, rather than 1918. But also I think that 1918 at the time was underreported in the press for a whole series of reasons. And it never quite lodged itself into the British mentality even at the time. And so I think because the war ended much more quickly than many people at home had expected, the war was over and people went on with either celebrating and then grieving and, and mourning. And the reasons for the victory in 1918 were relatively overlooked. And certainly writers in the 20s and 30s onwards, for all sorts of reasons, some good, some bad, tended to look at the battles of 1916 and 1917. And that until very recently has continued to be the case. There are now some particularly popular books on 1918 out there, but they're far outnumbered by people writing on the Somme and Passion Bell. Do you think this might be why nowadays most people in Britain, or certainly many people in Britain, still view the war as a catastrophe, even though Britain was victorious? I think there's a lot in that, yes. Quite simply, 1918 has never lodged itself into the British collective mentality, or British collective memory, I should say, in the same way as 1916-1917 has. Now, I think things have started to change in the last couple of years. Various books, television programs, and so on, have started to suggest that something you know, actually quite important and spectacular and successful happened in 1918. But it takes a long time to change public perceptions of something as large as a world war. And how do you think we can change these perceptions? I think bit by bit, by scholars plugging away, not just writing books which other historians read, but also writing more popular, more accessible texts, by engaging in debates in, in, in magazines like the BBC History magazine, um, television and radio programmes. And I think things are starting to change slowly but surely. Certainly a few years ago, the suggestion that Britain won the war in 1918 would be regarded not merely you know, with, with amazement, but indeed by fury with some people, many simply would not have any idea of what happened in 1918. And I think actually now people do have a bit more of an idea. Things are changing slowly. So now we're 90 years after the armistice. Do you think it's a moment for celebration or commemoration? I don't think celebration is an appropriate term at all. Commemoration, certainly. But it should be commemoration in terms of what was achieved. The First World War was an absolutely ghastly tragedy, a, a human tragedy unparalleled in the British experience, far worse in terms of sheer numbers of dead, maimed and mentally scarred than the Second World War. But we shouldn't forget that these people who suffered in the First World War did so for an important cause. I believe that what happened in 1918 was the victory of liberal democracy over a militarist autocracy in the shape of Germany. And we should never forget that although the world of 1919 that the soldiers came back to was far from perfect, a world in which the Germans had been victorious would have been far, far worse. So we should certainly commemorate the suffering and the losses, but we should also remember the achievement of the soldiers of 1918. Do you believe that the way the war is commemorated at the moment, is that appropriate, do you think? I think so. I'm certainly the last thing I would want to see would be any form of triumphalism. And I think mourning and commemoration in that sense is appropriate. What I don't agree with is the idea that these people died for nothing. That simply isn't true. 
That was Professor Gary Sheffield. Now, uh, he's got a World War I book which has just been published, and uh, I'm now going to talk to Sue about uh, the selection of World War I books that have come out for this, uh, this month's anniversary. Um, so, Sue, what's, what's Gary's book? Right, well, Gary Sheffield's book is um, one of those books that has removable um, items that you can look at, um, sort of copies of archived documents. It's called The Western Front Experience, 1914 to 1918, and it's published in association with the Imperial War Museum. And and I brought it along here to have a look at. Uh, It's got some great pictures um, and documentary uh, references um, and all the usual stuff that you'd expect. Uh, One thing that particularly caught my attention was a sort of identification uh, for German troops of what the various other troops on the field might look like. So you've got um, pictures of um, all the British troops there, uh, pictures of the Belgians and pictures of the French, and this is so that they could identify them in the field. Um, and there's some lovely things like that in the book. That's fantastically colourful. It's great. Um, of course, the English, the, sorry, the British, should I say, um, are all in khaki uh, because we'd learned in previous wars that um, you lost fewer troops that way. But the French, interestingly enough, are still in lovely bright blue and red um, uniforms, which I think they um, abandoned fairly soon afterwards. Interestingly, one of the British troops um, is called um, an Indischer Hilfstrupper, um, and he's a sort of Indian gent in uh, putties there um, with his rifle um, and a turban on. And similarly, the French um, have a Turk on their side. So there are obviously significant numbers of these troops in the field that the Germans wanted to be able to um, identify them. Well, that's something that we talk about in the in the supplement to the magazine is the fact that it, the First World War was a global war and there were a lot of um, people from the, the colonies at the time fighting on, on both sides in the war. So um, that, that rather proves the point. Indeed. Um, and I've picked up another document from that, um, from the book, um, which is a letter um, dated 1918. Um, and it reads, Dearest Dads, I'm writing this now in the vain hope I may be able to get it posted in a day or two. We did a grand uh, job this week, going over the top, complete with heavy barrage, etc. The first quarter of an hour was rather beastly as we landed in terrible barrage. But when we, something, that, we had a grand time. Crowds and crowds of prisoners, all absolutely terrified to death, etc., etc. And that was a letter home from one of the troops. So there's some great talking points in that book. Yeah, looks good. What else have you got? Okay, um, another book I've picked up is a reprint of The Battlefields of the First World War by Peter Barton and Jeremy Banning, which is an extraordinary set of panoramic panoramic photos by officers on both sides, uh, most of which are marked um, top secret. Um, And I've got the book here, and there's a fantastic picture of Le Touquet. Um, It's a second army panorama. Um, and as you can see, it's pictures of the battlefield at a fairly early stage because there are actually some buildings still standing. Um, and it's annotated with um, degrees of the compass and it points out the red tile house, the German front line, um, the Crown Prince farm, Estaminate house, uh, and then the British front line. So separating the two lines, you can see it's just a couple of houses and a few trees. So it really gives a totally new perspective um, on the battlefield. Um, and there are many other pictures, um, and it's one of those books that folds out, so you really do get quite a wide panorama, okay. um, and you can see all the blasted trees and so forth. Um, so that's a great one. Anything else grabbed you in the in the World War One selection? Indeed. Well, that um, contrasts, uh, the sort of blasts, blasted trees there, contrasts with the calm classical architecture and the rows of gravestones in a book about Lutchens called Lutchens and the Great War by Gerald Glidden and Tim Skelton. Um, now, Lutchens, of course, um, created the um, memorial to the missing at uh, Teepfell, 
um, which has been called um, one of the finest works of British architecture anywhere in the world. But he actually did huge numbers of um, memorials throughout Britain, Europe and the rest of the world. And this book is a roundup of of some of the, well, of all of them, really. So it's a great um, it's a great book um, as well. Uh, moving on, I've got some lovely personal um, reminiscences and diaries. And um, one of my favourites is Harry's War um, by Harry Stinton. Mm, I had a look at that. This is a good one. It's great. It's a British Tommy's experiences in the trenches in World War One. Now, it wasn't found until the 60s when he died. His sister found it when she was going through his things. Um, now, I think we have to say that Harry was not the finest artist, but um, he had he's made some great pictures um, you wouldn't find them in the tape, but they're just simply brilliant. There's one here which I'm looking at. Um, it shows foot inspection. Um, basically, they'd been standing in the water for a week in the trenches and they were taken behind the lines to recuperate. Um, and there's a lovely picture of foot inspection after being in the trenches, Christmas week, 1915. Um, and a nice description of um, what happened when their um, feet were swollen and were terribly sore and all the rest of it. Um, but there's also a great... Um, diary entry for Christmas Day when they were force-fed rum uh, because the doctor insisted that because of what they were going through they had to have extra rations and basically someone then brought round a box of chocolates um, and he says by now I was feeling the effects of the rum all things around seemed different and appeared to move about some sweets from a box were offered to me at first I could see one but as I looked it changed into two or three I guessed I was drunk and wondered which box was the right one. I thought my legs were going to give away and I felt kind of contented and sleepy. So I made my way to the shelter we had made and went fast off to sleep. And um, well, he woke up some time later and they had been under um, under fire and the whole place was sort of falling in on top of him and he'd slept through the whole thing. Quite amazing. It's a, it's a lovely portrayal of the of the human side of the war, isn't it? Indeed. Um, Okay, so uh, that's that's uh, some of the some of the World War One books that have come into the office this month. Um, now, before we go on to Michael Palin and his his personal and rather moving view of uh, of the last day of the war, uh, please could you indulge us for a brief advertising message, which I hope you'll find interesting. BBC Audiobooks has just published a new CD called Alistair Cook: The Essential Letters from America, the Seventies. Alistair Cook was a radio legend, entertaining millions of listeners for over fifty years in his weekly Letter from America. It was the longest-running one-man series in radio history, and every show was a virtuoso performance. This selection of letters features some of Cook's most perfectly crafted broadcasts over the 1970s, a decade memorable, amongst other events, for the abrupt end to the Vietnam War and the Watergate tape scandal which led to President Nixon's resignation. These letters are set in their historical context, with a specially commissioned script narrated by award-winning BBC correspondent Matt Fry. In November 1970, Cook broadcast a letter from America which had Veterans Day as its theme. He began with a rare insight into his own Blackpool childhood at the end of the Great War and contrasted his memories of that Armistice Day with the current activities of anti-war protesters in New York. Good evening. On the very first Armistice Day, I was up early took three lengths of what I think we called cartridge paper and glued them together as a long, continuous scroll. I'd spent all the previous day copying onto these pages in script the entire armistice terms as they had been printed in the papers. By 10.30 or thereabouts, I carefully rolled up the scroll as you would a roll of wallpaper 
and I tied it with a red, white, and blue ribbon and fastened it with a small brass safety pin. I was now ready for the great occasion. I was rather hazy about what this was to be, but we'd been told that at eleven o'clock all the church bells would be set to ringing, and that was the time to be out on the streets. My mother was dressed and ready, and just before the hour we sallied forth into the briny air. The bells rang out, and I marched around, clutching my mother's right hand with my left, and clutching in my right hand the fateful scroll, the armistice terms, which, I imagine, I expected at some unstated time to deliver to Mr. Lloyd George or Monsieur Clamenceau or Marshal Foch, if any of them should appear. It now seems unlikely to me that any of them would suddenly show up on Blackpool Promenade, though they would have had a rousing cheer from the American soldiers who were still drilling there on the sands the official word apparently not having got through that their services would no longer be required. All I can remember now is the extraordinary blitheness of the occasion, not delirium or euphoria. Too many million men had been lost for that and there were too many women in black around to let you forget it. But an air of benevolence and health as if the whole population had emerged from a spanking ten hours of sleep. People nodded to each other, and strangers doffed their hats in a subdued way to the ladies in black. This CD audiobook is on sale now from all good booksellers and is also available as a digital download. For more information on this title, please visit our website www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash bbcshop.asp. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. And now let's hear from Michael Palin, who, as I said, has been presenting a BBC Time Watch programme all about the last day of the First World War. 
what were the main things that you learnt in making the programme? First of all, how many people died on um, in that, um, that sort of six-hour period between the armistice and the actual ceasefire. Um, uh, and, you know, there were considerable numbers. I think I can't remember what it is in the end, but many thousands. And, um, and not just that people died, but that um, attacks were launched, even though people were aware that um, the ceasefire was uh, coming into um, coming into place. So there were people who actually felt they must, it was their duty to fight up to the last minute. Um, and uh, particularly the Americans who'd come into the war quite late on and were full of energy and determination whereas the British and the Germans and the French were absolutely exhausted by the heavy losses previous, in the previous years of the war. But the Americans were, were kind of fresh, and they felt it was their duty to keep fighting right to the last minute. And um, in the Argonne Forest area, which we visited, um, an awful lot of Americans were killed, probably needlessly. Just appears to be total madness, doesn't it? Did you did you have that sense that it was just it, it just really typified the madness of the of the whole of the whole war, really? Yes, I mean the war itself was pretty hard to justify. Um, troops had got entrenched; they were just fighting for the sake of fighting. I think people had kind of almost lost what the object of the war was all about. Um, but the Americans, uh, certainly Pershing, who was their um, general in command. Uh, quite interestingly, believed that there was a purpose to the war, and that was to completely annihilate the German forces and to push them back to Berlin. Uh, and I think he said, which I learned, which is quite sort of um, uh, perceptive in a way, that, that if they didn't do that, they'd be fighting the same war 20 years later. And, and in, in a way, you know, he, he seemed to know uh, what it was all about. But, of course, it didn't stop an awful lot of soldiers being being killed and once the agreement had been reached you're right it does seem completely foolish to have, to have carried on killing and you you highlight some of the tragic stories full of pathos of people dying on the mm. last day yeah um, how does how did that make you feel when to to investigate those stories well i mean you 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 do feel whenever you look at that war um because in, a, in an odd way it feels closer to me than the, than the Second World War. I don't know why. I mean, obviously, it isn't physically closer, but I think it was because um, it was a less high-tech war. People were actually dying by shooting each other. There was sort of more hand-to-hand combat. You know, it was almost a more sort of... It was fought at a more basic human level. So you do find these stories. And in the British... You know, among the British Army, of course, some of the great writers and poets... Um, uh, fought in the war, so they were able to express the horror of the war and how moving and how how um, tragic it was. And so I think seeing uh, William um, uh, Sir Wilfred Owen's grave was was for me quite a, um, a a moving moment because I I remember at school and and afterwards um, f- finding his poetry very affecting. And there was his grave, and to know that he uh, was killed not on the last day, but in in probably the last offensive. It was about five days before the end of the war, 
and his parents didn't know, and the bells were ringing in Shrewsbury where they lived um, on on the uh, when the ceasefire was announced, and I think it was that day that someone came up with an envelope and said, um, you know, uh, don't celebrate too much. Uh, he died five days ago. So you do feel for those families at the very end of the war who uh, were notified, just hoping, clinging on to every hope that their their uh, children, their loved ones would come back safe. And of course, um, to know that uh, some died within half an hour of the end of the war must have been particularly difficult to, to take. Did you uh, did you know much about the First World War before you embarked on on this? Um, well, I've always been always been fascinated by it. I, mean, I suppose it's one of the areas where um, you know I studied it, but also I read a lot of books um, about the war and uh, Goodbye to All That, which was the Robert Graves famous Robert Graves book. I remember reading that when I must have been in my early teens. And then the war poets, um, like Wilfred Owen, like Graves himself, Edward Thomas, whatever. I mean, I, I, for some reason, those stories really affected me when I was quite young. And I think it was because the people who, a lot of people writing these poems, were not much older than me. And I was, uh, and because, you know, language can be so powerful that their experience through their well-chosen words and images came right through to me. And I felt, gosh, you know, there, but for the grace of God, it would have been me, you know. And, and as I grew up, then I think I see my children as teenagers. I think it would have been them. They would have gone to the war. Um, so I, I, um, I, had, I had a great interest in it, but I'd never really um, been out to, to northern France uh, or Belgium, seen any of the areas, seen the sort of trenches where the the fighting took place. So um, that was what was particularly interesting in in in, uh, in filming this this documentary. The the two places that moved me one one was a it was a cemetery called Saint Symphorien, um, near Mons in Belgium, and that is um, I think it was originally a German uh, war graveyard, and the German graveyards are slightly different to the British ones. The British tend to lay their dead out in long lines and the Germans they preferred circles, they preferred uh patterns, you know, that had some sort of uh, relevance to German literature, German life, you know, it was all these sort of things. They were they were much more sort of uh artfully constructed. So you get little sort of a, a circle of Germans buried in a circle. It's quite a small cemetery and round the back um a number of British graves all laid out. So in fact there were Germans and British buried in the same Graveyard. Okay, and, and finally, so this is the this year is the 90th anniversary of the end of the war. Obviously, a, a significant event. What? How do you think we should be remembering the war now? Well, I think that we know a lot about this particular war now. I don't think we should forget it, nor do I think we will forget it, because I think um, there are maybe not so many sort of photographic images and films of the war. But um, there is an awful lot uh, through the Imperial War Museum, for instance, where you can you can actually see and feel what uh, it was like to be in the trenches. And um, northern France and Belgium, as, as I've said before, they've kept not just the cemeteries, but also some of the um, trench networks have been preserved. So if you, you want to, you can certainly go and feel and experience what it might have been like. 
But I, I feel that a lot of the impact for me was in the writing and, and in those poems of Wilfred Owen and, and others and and, uh, and books like Grace's book. I, I mean, you can find those. I hope those books will still be around. Maybe a number of them may be uh, reissued about that time. But I, I would say to anybody, you know, don't forget. The best way not to forget is to read read some of the, uh, the war poetry or read some of the books that came out of it. So, Michael Palin presents the uh, Time Watch programme on the last day of the war uh, sometime in November. We're not sure of the exact transmission time at the moment, but if you were to sign up to our TV newsletter, which sends out an email to you every week telling you what's coming up on history on TV and radio in the in the week ahead, um, then you'd have the full transmission details. You can do that by going to www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash sign up. Now, our final interview is uh, Rob Attar once again, and this time he's talking to Professor David Reynolds about his forthcoming BBC TV programme on the armistice, which concluded the war. What you're looking at in this programme is how the First World War led on to the Second World War, and specifically the armistice. Could you please expand on that? Historians are often interested in why wars begin. What I'm trying to say in the film is that the way wars end can often be as important because in the way they end, we often have the seeds of future conflict. And that's really the idea behind this program. It's looking at the way the First World War ended, hopefully the war to end wars, but in fact, as we now know, the First World War, because it led to another one 20 years later. A lot of people talk about how the Treaty of Versailles brings on the Second World War, but it seems like you're looking a bit earlier at the actual armistice itself. An armistice is really an agreement to end fighting so that you can start talking about a peace treaty. But this particular armistice is an extremely harsh one. It inflicts very punitive terms on Germany already in terms of the sacrifice of its military armaments and the withdrawal from occupied territory and so on. So the armistice of 1918 is already the essence of the punitive peace that is imposed on Germany in June 1919 by the Treaty of Versailles. And that's in part because Germany has collapsed internally in the month during which the armistice has taken place. So the, uh, the new German government is in no position to resist these harsh terms. So basically the armistice prefigures the kind of terms filled out, fleshed out in June 1919. Why couldn't the Germans have pressed for better terms at the armistice? because they have fallen apart within. Effective negotiation depends on a certain amount of equality at the bargaining table. What has happened you know, in late October and early November is that the German army is disintegrating. The German navy revolts. The um, fleet at Kiel, the sailors there, revolt against any further continuation of the war. There's huge food crisis at home. So this is a country that is really falling apart. And so there isn't any really effective way of resisting the pressure that the Allies are putting on them. The point about the film, in a way, is to emphasize how quickly Germany's position is transformed in those five weeks from early October to early November. It's a different country. And people find it very hard to keep up with that internally and abroad as well. So why had it become this different country? Was it the military defeats had brought it down? Another thing that we follow up on in the film is, if you like, there's a premonition of what might happen in the Russian Revolution of 1917. You know, there's a great power that goes all out 
in war mobilizes its resources, its people, keeps fighting, keeps pushing these people to the limit. And finally, the soldiers refuse to carry on and the economy is no longer capable of carrying on. And when a country has been pushed right to those limits, then the breakup can be very fast and very dramatic. Now, that's what happens in Russia in 1917. In a sense, it's what happens in Germany in 1918. Ludendorff, in search of victory, pushes the country beyond its limits, both in terms of asking from the home front more than can be provided when people are virtually starving, and throwing the army again and again into these massive onslaughts in the spring of 1918, which do gain Germany a huge amount of territory, but at the massive human losses. And so basically, you've got an army and a population that snap in the autumn of 1918. Ludendorff seems to himself have been responsible for part of Germany's defeat, but he then went on to blame these same people who he'd saddled with the armistice later on. That's right. Ludendorff is going all out for victory, for total victory, in 1918. His feeling is that the Russian Revolution means that there is now no Eastern Front. So for the first time, Germany hasn't got to fight in a major war on two fronts. There's still a front in the Balkans and so on, but they're not having to fight Russia anymore. So he can move divisions back to the West. He goes all out for victory in the spring of 1918, from March through to really to July. Then... The army is exhausted. The Allies regroup. The Americans are starting to come into the line. The British are fighting now a very efficient war, relatively speaking. So the Allies start to advance back and push the Germans back. And eventually, Ludendorff, for reasons we explore in the film, basically breaks. He snaps. He has a nervous collapse. He says, we cannot carry on. And he says, we must try and seek an armistice. So to a significant extent, he is involved in the high and the lows, as far as Germany is concerned, in 1918. The push for all-out victory, and then the decisions that initiate not only the armistice, but the internal collapse of Germany. But then he later on teams up with the Nazis. Absolutely. Part of the way in which Ludendorff and the right spread this myth that it's the socialists who are to blame for the armistice, they use that to attack the collapse of Germany to build up support for the Nazis. And um, he is indeed a presidential candidate in the first round of the presidential election in the mid-1920s. So, yes, I mean, Ludendorff throws in his lot with the right. In fact, he is, as we explore in the film, he is a very unstable figure. By the end of his life, he is a, a sort of writing fantasy tracks about how the Jews and the Masons and the Jesuits are trying to run the world and so on. I mean, he becomes something of a nutter. And there are more than enough signs of that in the war itself. Something else you talk about in the film is talk about Petain and compare him to Ludendorff. I think you said that Petain actually, you compare him quite favourably to Ludendorff. What were his advantages? Yeah, well, part of what I'm trying to explore in the film is this business of commanding, of how you command masses of troops. And Ludendorff is essentially a staff officer who has risen up. In other words, he's a brilliant planner. And we start with his victories in 1914 in in Eastern Europe, Tannenberg. But the way he runs a war is in a chateau way behind the lines, and we filmed in some of them, dealing with maps, dealing with phones, dealing with dispatches, but not really dealing with blood and gut and the kind of mud and all the mess of the trenches. And that, in my mind, is part of the reason why he simply doesn't understand what is happening to the German army in 1918. He doesn't realise that he's pushed it too far. When it starts to break up, he blames it on the agitators on the left and so on. 
Petain is a different kind of soldier because he had started the war as a relatively junior officer, still in command of frontline troops. He was involved in combat in some of the early battles of 1914, and he had therefore a sense of what war was like. And when he takes over at Verdun in 1916, it is as a soldier soldier. He is, as he says, and I quote the lines in the film, you know, he's harrowed by the eyes of these young men who come back from the hell of Verdun. Uh, marching back into the city after being fighting out in the forts and so on. He understands soldiers in a different way. In 1917, he's responsible for trying to bring the French army to order after the terrible mutinies, order both in the sense of discipline, but also trying to provide what the soldiers need in terms of food, leave, provisions, things like this. So he understands soldiers and what's involved in asking soldiers to fight in a way that I don't think Ludendorff did. So that part of what I'm exploring this this film is actually the nature of war, the task of a commander, and what it takes to be a successful commander. Do you think Petain had it and Ludendorff didn't? Yeah, he did. On the other hand, what Petain didn't have, and Petain was a great defensive general. In 1918, when the German offences start to come in, Petain loses his nerve once there are big breakthroughs. He does fear that there is a defeat in the offing. And a general like Ludendorff at least did have this sort of will to victory, which is clearly needed in a really successful commander. And this particular trait of of Pétain's, this tendency to feel that if the lines are broken, if the situation becomes apparently untenable, then there's not much more you can do. That, of course, comes out in 1940 when he presides over the French surrender to Germany, which is part of what we talk about at the very end of the film. Because I suppose it's interesting that both Petain and Ludendorff ended up associated with the far right after the war. That's right. I mean, they're military figures. And on the whole, they believe in um, the sort of military and militaristic virtues. But they are very different as commanders. Do you think that if the Nazis hadn't been on the scene, would another party have used the stab in the back idea to overtake the Social Democrats? Or did it need the Nazis as well? Hitler does this ruthlessly and successfully as a political party. I mean, once they fail to seize power, then they go the political route and they're very successful at drumming up and mobilising support. So some of this has to do with sort of political techniques they use of mass mobilisation. But the the issue that they're putting a finger on, a betrayal in 1918, that's an issue which I think would have been probed by any, was by right-wing parties, not just the Nazis. You cover quite a lot of the French side of the war in the film. What else do you talk about there? Well, the centrepiece for the French is the Battle of Verdun, and so we explore that not just to bring out the sense of how Pétain leads, but also to give a sense of the appalling bloodletting of that conflict in 1916, which was the sort of Stalingrad of World War I, both in terms of losses and also in terms of the symbolism involved. And I think some of the filming uh, people will find, I think, quite striking there. I mean, we film, for example, at this amazing ossuary at Verdun, where they preserve the bones of an estimated 150,000 dead who were essentially dismembered by the shelling and their bones in a random way have been put together in the ossuary and it's quite a gruesome sight. So what that does, I think, is to give you a rather fresh image, again, for British viewers, of what the war was like. You know, we have a lot of images of the trenches around Ypres and so on. Those are fairly familiar. In exploring the war again this autumn for a British audience at the time of the 90th anniversary, we were looking for ways of bringing out some other sides of the war. So part of the point of filming at Verdun, which is very striking, very moving visually, is to convey that sense of the war as well. Do you think that people in Britain 
have a too British focus for the First World War? I don't think peculiarly so, because all countries tend to celebrate their own aspects of both world wars. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong in that, because these are acts of remembrance and commemoration of loved ones, as well as they are historical events. But certainly if one wants to get a broader historical perspective, it seems to me reasonable to go outside the familiar. And that's really part of what the film is trying to do. So this is not in a sense to criticise the way we remember the war and the way that we remember our dead, which is now, I think, very moving on the 11th of November every year. But it's just to say, look, here are some things that you may not know about the war. Let's look at it from some other sides and ones that also have significance if we want to understand why this war leads to another one 20 years later. David Reynolds' documentary Armistice will be shown on BBC4 in November. And again, I'd recommend that you sign up to our TV email for full transmission details on that. The details once more, www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash sign up. And don't forget you can subscribe to BBC History Magazine and save 25% on the shop price. Uh, With our special offer this month, you can get a free book when you subscribe. Um, And the choice of books again is Blood and Guts, History of Surgery, World War II Behind Closed Doors, Stalin, the Nazis in the West by Lawrence Rees, The American Future by Simon Sharma, or The Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England by Ian Mortimer. All you need to do is go online at www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash subscribe dot ASP. So that's it for this month. Uh, if you want more history, then uh, I would recommend, of course, that you buy the magazine or take a look at our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, which has all manner of interesting content on there. Um, and do look out for the second slice of this month's podcast, which will be released on the 13th of November. And that will include a chat with uh, archaeologist come TV presenter Neil Oliver about the history of Scotland, Lawrence Rees on the Second World War, and Munro Price on the French Revolution. So I do hope you'll join us for that. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.